With Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. May I make the point emphatically then that this country was founded on the religious basis. And that religious basis is Christianity. Maine, New Hampshire, Connecticut, Massachusetts, by Congregational. Rhode Island by Baptists who had been Congregational. <clears throat> New York by Anglicans, but mostly by Dutch Reformed, and some Lutherans. New Jersey by Dutch Reformed, some Lutherans, Scotch-Irish, and Quakers. Pennsylvania by Lutherans, Quakers, Scotch-Irish, Christians, <clears throat> some Roman Catholics. Maryland by Roman Catholics and Puritans. Virginia by Anglicans, uh, Presbyterians, Baptists. Not too many Baptists then, but there were some. North Carolina by the Moravians. <clears throat> by the Scotch-Irish and Scotch-Pestians, by the Anglicans, and the Huguenots. South Carolina, by the Huguenots, the Scotch-Irish-Pestians, and the Anglicans. Now, I'm speaking now of the 17th century colonies. Delaware, uh, <coughs> a combination of Anglicans, but mostly Presbyterians. I know I did not use the method for this reason. <coughs> the Methodist Church did not appear in England even until the 1730s. 40s, and thus it, it could not have taken part in 17th century colonization of country. Uh, I mean, no offense to Memphis, just one of the facts of history that they weren't on the scene. Now, <clears throat> that's not the only point. I have made the point that <clears throat> these groups came over for religious reasons, without, all, without exception. The Germans were divided between the Lutherans, the Pietists, like the, 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 like the, the Church of the Brethren, other Pietistic groups. Um, the Anglicans were divided between the Anglicans, I mean the English were divided between the Anglicans <coughs> and the Quakers, <coughs> and a few other smaller groups. Um, the Prestians were solidly Prestians. Wherever you found the Scotch-Irishmen, you found the Prestians. And by 1776, <coughs> the Scotch-Irish were the most numerous homogenous group in the colonies. A lot of people don't realize that. But because of the tremendous famines in Ireland beginning in 1776 and continuing spasmodically down to about 1776, period of 59 years, there were three or four great uh, uh, famines in Ireland and literally hundreds of thousands of people left. And they came to this country partly for, just to survive, partly for religious reasons. The Huguenots came because Louis XIV revoked the Egypt of Nantes in 1689. That's why my family, Singer family, came over. They came over from all place for rain, which was under his rule, and, and uh, he revoked the Egypt of Nantes, which had granted Protestants great many privileges in uh, 1585, and so on. The point is <clears throat> that they came over as religious people, devoted to their respective uh, denominational affiliation and theological convictions. I'm not saying it was 100%, that's foolish. But you see, <clears throat> I've heard Mr. Mondale and others make a very serious error. They say that the, that the percentage of people 
belonged to churches were small. Now, there's such which that's true. But let me show you why it's true. Suppose you had said that Baltimore's Roman Catholic, uh, but you had decided to go out to, say, Hagerstown Mountain, let's say, in, uh, well, in, say, 1730. Well, uh, you can get to Hagerstown pretty easily today, at least from North Carolina. But if you'd gone from Baltimore to Hagerstown in 1730, uh, you would have been intercepted by Indians, and uh, you'd have, there's no road, you'd have had to make your way. The result was that no matter whether Presbyterian, Baptist, Roman Catholic, uh, Congregational, what have you, <clears throat> and once you got away from what we call the, the Eastern Shoreline, and, and that would be the, the narrow settlement, all from, say, from Richmond, to, from Jamestown to Richmond, Virginia, say, Philadelphia to Lancaster and Pennsylvania, and New York to Albany, and Boston to Worcester, <clears throat> and just, well, Connecticut was fairly well settled. But you take, the, you take North Carolina, where I live, we're trying to demolish the ocean. To go from, from, say, Wilmington or New Bern, which were the two main ports, to, to Salisbury, 250 miles was a breathtaking and dangerous experiment. Now, <clears throat> the Moravians settled went at Old Salem and there were Presbyterians around Fulbright. But you know, they didn't go to General Assembly and make reports every year. They didn't go to Presbyterian. <clears throat> and Charles Carroll uh, didn't go out to didn't go out to Hagerstown to visit Roman Catholic friends. If they wanted to see him, they had to come to, to Baltimore. He was about to go out there. I don't blame him. The result was that <clears throat> the, the records of membership in the, in the church, say, of 1730, 1740, 1600, are, are, are very, very misleading. They only took the members of the church, which were nice and handy. But the people who went out to Kentucky, who <clears throat> went out to Western Pennsylvania, who went to, went to Salem, Salisbury, uh, where, where blue blood stocks. In other words, uh, this, is a, this is a very fallacious way of carrying real membership. And uh, <clears throat> very early in the game, that, that when they did come in the 18th century, the Methodists developed a circuit rider to meet this very situation. Presbyterian preachers had circuit riders. You know what they are? Yeah, not, not for sure. Well, <coughs> they rode around yes. with their Bible. They, they rode around their Bible, and uh, there's a father, oh, I'm trying to remember his name. The Roman Catholic priest did the same thing. He would take his communion set with him, and his Bible, and his mass, and uh, around his horse. Uh, well, no, he didn't go that far, but they did go out to where Louisville. They go out in that section, or they go out to, uh, from Savannah at the river to Augusta, <coughs> things like that, uh, which was an arduous undertaking. They, they, they did their best, but um, uh, we, 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 we don't understand the difficulties they faced. Both geographical and Indian. So that um, these people didn't come. Now, not everybody knows. But the man who in 1585, Richard Hacklett, who wrote a book on, on the necessity of, of English colonization in the New World, used as one of his main arguments, the need for missionary activity. Now let me impress upon you some further facts. In 1606, James I issued to two companies charters to establish colonies in the New World. The first was the Plymouth Company, which was given the territory really about from Philadelphia up to 
brought the southern boundary name. <clears throat> and the second was the London Company, which was given at that time uh, from uh, oh, um, the northern boundary of Virginia down to Carolina. Uh, as a matter of fact, it cut across about here in Atlanta from the, from the coast. Now, in these charters, there was a charge, or a, a shall we say, a requirement, that that the English common law, with its Christian content, be the law of the colony, and secondly, that it be as the hub or the base for missionary activity. In other words, the Virginia Company, as it was renamed in 1609, was given the task of being the the center for missionary activity for the Indians of the South. The same thing was true of the Carolina Charter. 1663. <clears throat> All these charters contain provisions for for uh, missionary activity and for the establishment of English common law. The biblical concept of law were to be written into the colonial legal code, and that is true of all the 12 original colonies, and it may be of Georgia. I'm not familiar with the, with the legal history of Georgia, I must admit. My brother lives in Tacoma, I should be, but I don't. No. Uh, But just to say, that in its legal system, these colonies had a legal basis. Now what do I mean by that? A legal, Christian legal basis. First, that the, that the basic content of common law, both in its civil and its criminal uh, content, was to be biblical. Uh, there would be no polygamy. There would be no incest. There'd be no adultery. There'd be no fornication. <clears throat> there would be no theft. There'd be no murder. In other words, the prohibitions contained in the Ten Commandments as to moral activity, ethical activity, were to be strictly enforced. Furthermore, <clears throat> the Virginia Company was enjoined strictly to, uh, uh, to observe the Sabbath day. Yeah. Same thing was true of the Massachusetts Bay Charter, 1630. And the Plymouth Company Charter, 16, uh, the, the Plymouth Charter, 1620, and then the Mayflower people in North Carolina. At that time, that just one colony, the, the North and South Carolina, was one time the same, had the same injunction. <clears throat> one of the principal founders of the Carolina colony was Lord Cartier, who was an exiled Huguenot from from France. <laughs> I could go on and on. The secretary for the Virginia Company was a man named the name of Edmund Sands, S-A-N-D-Y-S. You know who he was? He was secretary treasurer for the for the Massachusetts Bay Corporation of John Winthrop. Am I being clear? No. <clears throat> what I'm saying is no secret. It's not something that singers dug up that nobody else knows. It's in the law book for Mr. Mondale to read. It's in the law book for the Supreme Court to read, if they can. <coughs> it's, it's in the law book for the politicians to read, if they care to, rather than going around uh, making tremendously 
fault and erroneous statement concerning religion in the schools and this, that, and the other thing. Now, what does this mean in practical life? <clears throat> Let's take a, a, the whole problem of education. At first, of course, there were very few public schools. <clears throat> the so-called public schools in Massachusetts were not public, really. Uh, and I, I'm honored for it. Uh, it did the, the statute of 1634 did require that the <clears throat> people of townships, and of course Massachusetts, lived, they lived in, in six-mile square townships, uh, rather than the counties, uh, like our counties in North Carolina and your counties in Georgia. Uh, how many counties in Georgia have? How many? We have 100. Now, <clears throat> I live in a county, the area of which is almost 600 square miles. Now, you can go 25 miles in most directions <clears throat> and still be in Lillian County. Well, now, you say, that's not much. It's not much today. But suppose <clears throat> you live in the extreme southern part of Lillian County and your church or your school is up in Salisbury. Nobody's right mind is going to do that 50 miles round trip every day. And so <clears throat> the churches supply the schools. As a matter of fact, the pastors were the, were the teachers. There's a very famous church near us, known as Thyatira Presbyterian Church. <clears throat> it was incorporated and chartered by the King of England in 1751. But long before it ever was a, recognized by George II, it was a, it was a meeting house, it was called. And nobody knows exactly when it started, but it seems to be about 1720. <clears throat> Dr. McCorkle became the pastor, and he founded a very famous church, I mean school, uh, right near the church, between the church and Seoul. Um, and uh, <clears throat> the result was that the schools were under control of the church. However, when in 1789, the legislature of North Carolina got a burst of energy, <clears throat> it founded the University of North Carolina. Gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, what happened? The legislature called the Reverend Dr. David McCorkle, the Presbyterian pastor of uh, Fire Church, to be the president of the University of North Carolina. Do you know what he did? <clears throat> he, he called Presbyterians to man all the faculty posts of any importance. And by that time, the Methodists and the Baptists did say, they did object to Christianity there, but they did say that the, that the legislature had created a university at public expense which the Presbyterians would run, which was pretty much the truth. And, and that Presbyterian influence was dominant for years. The same thing is true with the University of South Carolina. So that <clears throat> when public schools did appear, and they began to appear in the 18th century, not in the country, science, where the churches have it, but I say in towns like uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, uh, Augusta, uh, Savannah, <clears throat> the larger towns began to have public schools. But what were those schools like? The scriptures were the textbooks for reading in practically all those schools. And not only were the textbooks for reading courses, they furnished the content for literature courses and for what they called moral philosophy. Now may I point out something to you? <clears throat> the Roman Catholics did not object to this. They had their own schools. There was no hearing cry. Hmm. 
they were teaching the same thing in their school. Well, definitely I do. I mean, they, they used the Ten Commandments, they used biblical literature. And nobody regarded this as a violation of the Constitution. So they see, <clears throat> in the period under discussion, which I'd say goes down to past 1800, public schools there were, and the many, many uh, church schools of various kinds, were turning out a steady stream of Christian young people. Which is to say that, that the consensus of thinking, the consensus <coughs> of, of political thought, the consensus in, in economic thought, the consensus in social thought, the consensus in educational theory and practice was biblical. It was biblical. Inevitably, the, the consensus thinking then among the political leaders of the nation would be biblical. The same thing would be true of the educational leadership. The same thing would be true of the social leadership. Break declared. Sorry. I'm giving a break. You want to turn off the... I've, I have not dealt with did my intended, but right now what I'm trying to do is to show you that we have a Christian heritage. I shall now discuss with you the Philadelphia Convention of 1787, which wrote the Constitution from May to September that year, from, from May the 17th until September the 13th. I want to make a sweeping statement uh, as part of the general sweep of this course. And is it that democracy and the Christian heritage of this nation are in deadly opposition. Democracy is the great nemesis of Orthodox Evangelical Christianity. It is humanism and political action. There are two phrases I've never let my students use when I was head of the history department at Catawba College. Uh, the Civil War and Democracy. If they called the war between the states a civil war, I'd flunk them without any questions. They were court-martial, <laughs> hung, and shot. <clears throat> that goes for y'all, too. <clears throat> so if anybody in here from the north, be very careful of your terminology. It's dangerous. It has often been alleged that not all the members of the Fallen Convention were Christians, that some were deists. I'm going to treat deism, but that is not the issue. I have made the point, I've never, well, first of all, I've never claimed that everybody in the country at any given point was Christian. <clears throat> There's no such thing as a perfect Christian community. I'm under no illusion. I am saying, and did say, in the in the 17th century, particularly, there was a binding, dominant, important Christian heritage, Christian consensus, involving the political, social, economic, and educational life of the people. No question about it. <clears throat> uh, for reasons I shall discuss possibly later night, certainly next time, this did diminish, didn't disappear, but diminished in the latter part of the 18th century. 
the war for independence was the product of deistic thinking or anti-Christian thought. Now, in the years which followed the war, <clears throat> well, really from 1787, life in the colonies was chaotic or in the new state. Um, attacked from within by uh, upheaval groups, rebellions in Massachusetts and so on, war between the states almost like North, like Pennsylvania and Connecticut, Virginia and Maryland, <clears throat> and uh, the problem with the, the state of Franklin, North Carolina, and uh, South Carolina and Georgia. Yes? I know this is very simplistic. No. No questions? Well, um, <clears throat> I think of the war of independence as being a break from the colonial power. It was. It was, a, it was a war of secession. We seceded from Great Britain. Yeah. Well, is that also you're saying a, a war of anti-religious? <coughs> anti <-religious coughs> the leaders of it, many leaders of it were deists, not all of them, <coughs> for reasons I shall come to. The point I'm making tonight is this, that <coughs> at, the, at the Convention of 87, whether they were all Christians or not, and they weren't, operated under Christian consensus. Now. And I'm not for a moment saying that it was an anti-Christian group. As a matter of fact, it was a very conservative group. When you have Oliver Ellsworth and Roger Sherman from Connecticut, William and, and Samuel William Johnson from Connecticut, you don't have a very radical group. There's probably no more conservative man in the, in the convention uh, than Roger Sherman or Oliver Ellsworth and, or some of the, the Massachusetts delegates. And when you have Alexander Hamilton from New York, <clears throat> you can hardly call it a radical convention. <clears throat> when you have James Wilson from Pennsylvania, you can hardly call it a radical convention. <clears throat> and so on. Or when you have John Rutt from, North, from South Carolina, or, or, or James Argyle from North Carolina, a member of the first Supreme Court, a great jurist. When you have Charles Pinckney from South Carolina, you can hardly call it a radical convention. When you have Abraham Baldwin, you know who he was? Don't you all live in Georgia? Baldwin County. Name for him. No. No. He was the most able of the Georgia delegates to the Philadelphia Convention. <clears throat> he was anything but radical. Anything but radical. Now, what I'm saying then is that you have a Christian consensus. By the time of 1787, <clears throat> even those who were not believers were, were, were so ingrained in, in the colonial tradition in regard to law and the political system and the school system and the culture in general that <clears throat> they, they didn't know anything else. Or if they did, they repudiated it. There were, <clears throat> in some days, there were very few radicals. In the policy commission, that Jefferson wasn't there. Now Jefferson was the most persistent, consistent, and radical uh, rascal in the in the picture. Jefferson was a first-class radical. He was a flagrant, unyielding, nasty unbeliever, <clears throat> equaled only by Benjamin Franklin. Hey, uh, I've heard it said that Franklin won the deist because he believed in prayer. That same Franklin, 
<coughs> married the son uh, uh, I mean excuse me <coughs> he, he married and stole the wife of his old German son William Franklin the royal governor of New Jersey had a wife Franklin stole her or sometimes they didn't pray <laughs> now <clears throat> Franklin was tricky he was deceitful when he went to France as ambassador he replaced John Adams for good reason John Adams gave moral lectures and ethical lectures and religious lectures to the French and to the court of Julius Louis XVI they were not widely accepted <clears throat> <clears throat> you know John Adams was over there as a minister of France the Continental Congress test sent him over and then sent Franklin to help him <clears throat> he wrote a letter back to the Continental Congress to which that Paris is not big enough for both me and Mr. Franklin Congress took him his word recalled John Adams <laughs> but the Lord works in marvelous ways as one of two performed John Adams would never have gotten treated the French he despised the French and wasn't backward about calling them when Franklin replaced him Franklin outdied the French he out he outplayed the French he outdanced the French and he out immoralized the French he stayed up all night partying and partying and partying he was very popular to court of Louis XVI no wonder he was one of the boys he got the treaties he got two treaties in 1779 February the 6th at the Philadelphia Convention Jefferson was not there he was ambassador to France from the Continental Congress Franklin was but now to be fair sometime between 1784 and his death in 1790 and I cannot tell you the exact date Franklin underwent a profound religious conversion at which time he penned his own um, uh, over to put in tune you know epitaph thanks <clears throat> epitaph I should epitaph I should know it's a Greek epitaph um, uh, <clears throat> in which he said here lies the body of Benjamin Franklin who eagerly awaits the day of resurrection and more but that was the theme of no he died in the firm hope of the resurrection now that was not a dear position it was not the position of an unbeliever what? Did we know that? yeah it's, it, <clears throat> it's, in the, it's in an old Episcopalian graveyard up in Philadelphia when I was in grad school I saw it and I can't remember yes I do it's, it's Christ Church which is one of those very very old Philadelphia uh, churches you're from isn't that right? you I don't think so uh-huh he said I shall appear or something I shall appear in a new edition because the Lord will raise me in which is, is obviously not a deist position by a very definition so I, I am convinced that he was converted but I cannot give the date but the date is not really the issue um, it's the fact now <clears throat> it was he who moved to, to open the sessions with prayer in the Solstice Convention the point is that the work of the Solstice Convention reflected the Presbyterian form of government now you see <clears throat> only two of the, of the denominations in existence and well three of them had a well-defined pattern of government apart from the Roman Catholics and they didn't happen in this country because 
the early Catholic Church in this country was regarded as a mission field, and it was it was uh, under the direct control of Pope and the Carroll family had the, the, uh, the financial responsibility, uh, the, uh, what we call that, the Secretary of Treasury for the Roman Catholic Diocese, uh, and it was suspected for that reason. It's telling. It was not popular in, in Rome at that time. Now, <clears throat> the Reformed Church in America, which was Dutch and but not too well known outside New York, New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania, the Anglican Church, which they didn't want to copy, and the most numerous church at that time was the Presbyterian Church. And most of the men, not all of them, but most of the men who went to the Fulton Convention <clears throat> wrote a frame of them which very clearly reflected the Presbyterian system. The state were the Presbyteries. Um, <clears throat> the, con the Congress was the General Assembly. And when the General Assembly sat as a court, it was the Supreme Court, the General Assembly is the Supreme Court of Presbyterianism. At the top was the executive head, the president. But the concept of the limitation of power <clears throat> as found in the Constitution, not only the Bill of Rights, but the whole Constitution is a definition of power. The whole Constitution is a definition of what Congress may and may not do. It has 17 expressly granted excuse me, expressly granted powers. That's all. John Jay, the first Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, was a strict Calvinist, a French Huguenot, to put it mildly. John Rutledge, <coughs> on the court, was a, a Calvinist Episcopalian from South Carolina. James Idle was a Presbyterian from North Carolina. James Wilson was a Presbyterian from Pennsylvania. And so on. One of the leading members of Congress was a man named Elias Boudinot, B-O-U-D-I-N-O-T, a Presbyterian, uh, well, actually he was a Huguenot, but he became Presbyterian in this country. And I could go on and on with the members of the Solicitor Convention. I'm just sort of dragging names out hither and yon to, uh, to give you an idea of what, but yes, ma'am. The Anglican, the Presbyterian. <clears throat> See, <clears throat> the, uh, the Anglican Church, until 1784, was under a cloud. They, they met in 1784 at Philadelphia and elected an, an American bishop, Bishop White of Philadelphia. Uh, but uh, they had been so closely identified with England and the, and the uh, Episcopal of London that uh, the, the cause didn't want to have too much to do with it. It had to reestablish its American uh, context. Uh, and the Roman Church was largely confined to Baltimore and Eastern Maryland and up in Philadelphia, some in New York at that time, to have any national influence. <clears throat> so the, 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 there's no doubt most historians, in fact, George Bancroft, the great historian of the 19th century, in fact, the greatest of those, uh, makes this very point. You see, the first, uh, the, the Presbyterian General Assembly met in 79, the first one, at the same time, the first Continental, I mean, the first Congress under the Constitution then. And there was an interlinking of, interlinking of ideas. Now I've established the fact that in its constitutional development, <clears throat> in its legal development, in its educational development, in its general cultural development, there was a Christian consensus in the country. 
uh, Washington began the practice of, of being sworn in by the use of scripture. As a matter of fact, ladies and gentlemen, what does every member of Congress do when he's elected to Congress? What does the president do? What does the vice president do? Huh? Swear, on the Swear on the Bible. As do members of the Supreme Court. As do the state governors. Is that an open Bible? Pardon me? Is that an open Bible? Yeah, uh-huh. <clears throat> they, have a, they have their privilege of, of, uh, of choosing the, the chapters, of, you know, the pages where they want to do it. That makes no difference. The Supreme Court owns the prayer. The uh, Congress owns the prayer. Chaplains, Army, Navy, Air Corps, Coast Guard, Veterans Hospital, still there. <clears throat> and so when <clears throat> Mr. Mondale Selma tells us you can't mix religion and government, as the Vice President of the United States, it was his duty to call upon the chaplain to lead in prayer. And Mr. Tip O'Neill makes the same statement in the house. It's his duty to call upon the chaplain in the house to lead in prayer. Now let me point something else out to you. If you use the year 1787 as a dividing line between the pre-constitutional period and the constitutional period, you take 16-7 and 78-7, you got a period of what? 180 years, don't you? Now, from 78-7 to, to 1984, it's 197 years, correct? Yeah, my math is still pretty good. In other words, <clears throat> our existence as a nation is only 17 years longer than the entire colonial period from 167 to 78 7. <clears throat> In other words, the, the legacy, the heritage, was part and parcel of the American political, social, and economic scene for 180 years in the so-called colonial period. And we've only outlived that period by 17 years. Now, when you have a heritage, which is just widely accepted and, and, and influenced so many aspects of the political and the economic and the social and the educational and the general cultural life of people for such a long time that heritage was well established uh, you'll be interested that George Marston wrote a chapter for a book which Stanford Reed edited you know Stanford Reed? he's a very close friend of mine <coughs> I wrote a chapter in there on the influence of Scotch-Irish on American history <coughs> Scotch-Irish Press the book was called The Impact of Calvin on the West now, <clears throat> I made the point that <clears throat> democracy and Christianity are inevitably involved in conflict, a conflict to the death. I'm not speaking now of Presbyterianism or the Baptist position or Methodism or the Lutheran position, the Roman Catholic position, and so on. I'm not speaking. And speaking of historic Orthodox Christianity <clears throat> based upon the scriptures and the great ecumenical creeds, Nicaea, uh, Constantinople, Ephesus, the Chalcedon, Second Nicaea, Constantinople, so I'm speaking of these creeds. They are at war. Now, <clears throat> the war has been going on in this country 
this is the 18th century. And they were aware of it. This is a John Cotton. It's on your page 18. <coughs> Let's read it together. I'll read it and you find it. <coughs> he gave this to the General Assembly of, of, the, of the Massachusetts colony. It was a political group. Democracy? I do not conceive that God ever did ordain it as a fit government. Either for the church or for the commonwealth. Then he asked this question which has never been answered. If the people be governed, who shall be governed? As for monarchy and aristocracy, they are both of them clearly approved and direct in scripture. Yet so as refers the sovereignty to himself and says that theocracy in both is the best form of government in the commonwealth as well as in the church. Mm-hmm. Now let me hasten to say something. The Constitution is not a democratic government. It is a constitutional republic. It meets the test of John Cotton and of the Puritans. There's been an assiduous, unceasing <coughs> attempt to transform and to translate and to interpret the Constitution as, an, as a democratic document. If you will only read <coughs> Madison's debates, which are easily available in any, well, they ought to be in the Atlanta Public Library. I know they're in the Emory Library and in other libraries of equal size. Georgia State, I'm sure we have it. Um, the, <clears throat> the statements of Roger Sherman, Robert Sherman said, I abhor I, I democracy. <clears throat> John Rose was violently opposed it. He wrote, the section of the, of the Constitution on the court so they'd be anti-democratic um, Hamilton Wilson Alfred Pinckney Ardall I'm just throwing out names as I think of them Elias Boudinot <coughs> these men were strongly opposed to democracy and tried to erect a kind of government which would be undemocratic now, may I say, ladies and gentlemen, this is true. I don't fear for anything I've said to you tonight, for I can prove it if you will but go to the library and get the appropriate book. I may be shocking you, so I want to. <clears throat> Listen to this. Democracy, I do not consider that God ever did ordain as a fit government, either for the church or the commonwealth. And we're not a democracy. Look at it. When the President of the United States takes the oath of office next January, he will not say, I hereby do solemnly swear to listen to the voice of the people and act accordingly. No. I take upon the oath what? to uphold and to follow what? The Constitution of this United States, the laws made in and, and, and pursuance there too. Marshall hit it right on the head <coughs> in Marbury versus Madison when he was answering the first uh, complaint of Marbury in that decision of March 1803. We are evidently a government of law and not of men. In the United States, law was to be sovereign because it represented the holiness and righteousness and justice of God and is related and revealed to man for his government. And, Ma- and Marshall was simply re- reiterating that belief in this great decision of Marbury versus Madison. 
we are enemies, a government of law, and not a man.
<coughs> violated every important part of the Constitution on the, on the basis of expediency. He misused money, he transferred money from one account to the other in the Treasury, he blockaded the Southern ports, which was illegal, <coughs> he called up the army when there wasn't a war, he, he removed ministers from the pulpit, he put people in prison, he, <coughs> he undermined the currency, he uh, he didn't have a central bank and he just printed money. He just printed money, uh-huh. But he didn't have to pay interest on it. That's right, and had they no had backing. A, they had a Federal Reserve, the <coughs> Federal Reserve didn't have any backing on their money. No, they had more reserve than he did then. Until until Johnson, the Federal Reserve did have gold backing, but the greenbacks didn't have two cents worth of banking, one cent. It was a completely illegal act. They didn't, didn't do as bad as they're doing now, though. Johnson. No, he didn't. I agree. But you see, you have hit the point. <coughs> he didn't do as bad as Johnson, which is to say he did bad. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree with you. I, I said, under Rosa and Johnson, <coughs> Lincoln was our worst president. After Roosevelt and Johnson? What? After Roosevelt and Johnson? Until Roosevelt and Johnson. Until <coughs> he was our worst president, the most dangerous the Constitution. How would you like with the war? Well, <coughs> Woodrow Wilson uh, was an able man who trusted the wrong people. <clears throat> he was a good man personally, and he had a bully. But <clears throat> he was misled into, into into creating the Federal Reserve Bank, not knowing what it was created for. And he listened too much to Colonel Howe, which was like um, uh, Mr. Carr listened too much to Mondale. So what about someone who said that uh, that most of the uh, the uh, Political leaders in the South. Uh, Someone said that most political leaders in the House, in the South, including uh, House's father, and Jefferson Davis, and uh, House was from Texas. Yeah, yeah. But were uh, Rothschild cotton agents. Well, that's been said, <coughs> but that's not true. Beauregard, um, General Beauregard. Are you talking about post-war period? He was before, before, before the civil, before the war between the states. Excuse me. You're forgiven, but I, <laughs> <laughs> please don't offend my sensibilities to the breaking point. A lot of these rumors get started. No, the, the Rothschilds came in to the American picture after, after way after the war between the states, up in the 1890s. <coughs> I'm not defending General Borgard, but you do have to, you know, remain historically accurate. Um, <coughs> what I'm saying is that <coughs> democracy very seldom elects good people because <coughs> it, it, it selects the lowest common denominator. Now, <coughs> this is true. Up until Roosevelt and even past Roosevelt, the South saved the nation. <coughs> I personally knew more of George, Dick Russell, his brother was Presbyterian pastor in the Second Church in Memphis. I knew Carter Glass, I knew Cottonhead Smith, uh, and others. These men, <coughs> these men, standing as they did, saved the nation. Strom Thurmond, I know him personally. These men saved the nation, and they stood against the tides of radicalism, of Roosevelt and Truman and so on. Did they veto the that they didn't veto them, they just stood against them. They can't 
sense can't veto a bill just going to refuse to pass it. <clears throat> but as, in, as they died off, <clears throat> and men of lesser ilk, lesser ability, are more in tune with the democratic voice. Uh, you see, uh, the, the nation's declined politically, you can't deny that. I don't say we always, always get, I think Reagan's done a good job. Uh, I think Carter did a very poor job. I know you all of Georgians, but uh, my daughter until recently lived in Georgia and she did not support Mr. Carter. Neither did her husband. <clears throat> and uh, um, today, uh, all you hear is democratic dribble out of politicians. Now, at the same time, that democracy is opposed to constitutional government, is opposed to church, is opposed to orthodox Christianity. No great debate. I'll, I'll take that. This is going to be the, the gist of the course, but today, tonight, I'm laying the foundation. And I hope it's clear. In your present situation in our government, how many are uh, opposed to democracy? And how many have been said? Jeremiah Denton of Alabama. Uh, Sam Nunn would be. He has that good intention. Um, Sam Salmon. East of Helm. Um, oh, the fellow from Indiana, Luger. The nice name, yeah. And uh, two others. Uh, nice thing, isn't there? Uh, I don't mean just us here, but, but everywhere. Isn't there a terrible mm. shift? And uh, we, we use the term democracy so loosely and in so many ways. For instance, I think constitutional, uh, politically, mm. we're calling constitutional republic you know, a democracy. I yeah. Mean, we've, we've done that. Then we've got this <coughs> other idea of, of this sort of egalitarian. Uh, uh, one man, one vote, everybody has the same yeah. opinion, sort of thing. But, uh, and, and, and it's just so many, we don't, when we say democracy, we don't really know what we mean no. at all. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. No, what I was trying to say is I think that if we separate those meanings of democracy, it would be less uh, <coughs> difficult to cancel. Uh, <coughs> you know, emotional. I agree with you. We've gotten so many emotional attacks to the term. That that uh, without really realizing exactly what we mean by it. I mean, I think when some people are like this against democracy, if someone's saying a while ago, I'll ask you about that. I don't think any of those men would be against the Constitution. Oh, no. I mean, I mean that, I think, you know. No, I'm not, I'm all for it. Well, I'm not saying that you're saying that. I'm having this confusion about that. Well, I'm probably confused too. Um, what I'm trying to do is get you to think clearly. Because <clears throat> clear thinking is, is in tremendous demand this day and age. Not to be fooled by what you hear. I don't listen to news. <clears throat> I cannot take it. I simply cannot listen to them when they set the purposely confused the American people. Now some do it in ignorance. Some do it by design. <clears throat> Sam Douglas is stupid. I mean Sam Thompson. That doesn't know the um, The New York Times does. Uh, the Washington Post. I used to think it knew the difference. I'm not sure it does now. Um, <clears throat> the Atlanta Constitution, I will allow you the privilege of deciding this case. Uh, <clears throat> Time Newsweek is only accurate when it ha an accident happens. <clears throat> I mean, it has to be a pretty bad accident for the time to get close to the news. All right. That's a good question. The United States News is fairly accurate. It's the, it's the best of the, of the journals. <clears throat> uh, the Wall Street Journal is fairly accurate. <clears throat> um, I get, I get a, a paper. I'm a member of an organization known as Accuracy in Media. 
headed by Reed Irvine of New York. It's called AIM. It is very, very good. Because <coughs> it doesn't cover all the news, but it, it's incisive and it's it appraisal of the news. <coughs> I, uh, if you like uh, US, uh, US News Media Magazine. Yeah, uh-huh. <coughs> I, um, I'm in constant communication with John East and Jesse Holmes, and sometimes with Tom Thurman. <coughs> um, yes, sir? Do you have any feeling about the McNeil Air Report? I thought it was two nights above. And well, I think it is. Tell you the truth, I actually don't know it that well, but I think it is. At least on purpose. They yeah. have people on different yeah, I think it's better. I I do see it once a case. Sometimes my friends don't see it. No. The thing I know again is simplistic, but um, if if you go into the premise that if you have a democracy, it's watered down. Everybody has the same voters, uh, mm-hmm. everybody has the same. Mm-hmm. That it becomes a mediocre thing. That, that it can't join you. Uh, people who are educated and some more need to read. People are trying. Mm-hmm. Why then have we not elected president to have um, the prerequisites for office? It's a good question, leading question. I'll take this up. I was going to say, our second greatest enemy is the public school system. It's the death knell of the republic. It concentrates on majors and ignorance. Okay. (laughs) Am I not right? I don't mean that all teachers are ignorant. A lot of improvement in the main day, yes. <laughs> Diplomat, I see. Now, <clears throat> yes, and now I'm going to have to summarize this stuff. I'm just wondering if there ever has been an actual democracy. It's a bad idea if it's never been tried out the way you're using well, it. Well, <clears throat> see, is there any such thing? Uh, Stalin was quite correct that the Soviet is the epitome of democracy. Democracy is totalitarianism. Uh, the, the, the Athenian democracy, you know how long it lasted? 30 years. The French Revolution was a democratic revolution. But who wants the French Revolution? <clears throat> the Russian Revolution was a democratic revolution, but who wants that? Now, Kerensky was not a communist, and that's why he had to leave rather suddenly. Because uh, he didn't. He wanted a constitutional monarch under Tsar Nicholas II. And that upset all of, of Lenin's plans to have a nasty man like Kerensky around, so he had to flee. Um, some people have wanted democracy uh, as an antidote to monarchism, like Zahn Nicholas II or Louis XVI. Uh, Cromwell <coughs> wanted democracy in England. He became a, a dictator. Democracy ends in dictatorship of some sort. Is that the masses of a strong man? It can't do anything else. Well, you're saying also like some of the the egalitarian ideals, the the egalitarian ideals, the the we don't have a democracy in structure, in fact. But the are you saying that the egalitarian democratic ideals, the the are really a dangerous thing? Sure. Where you have equality, you can't have liberty. Where you have liberty, you can't have equality. There's no such thing as equality in the modern democratic sense. And when you try to enforce equality, you are using force to, to achieve something which you shouldn't achieve and which you can't achieve if you did try because the people enforce the people are not equal. But see, when people enforce democracy, they're not equal because they're using force to achieve their end. Well, don't you think that that really went into effect heavily in the Kennedy years when it started all of the ERA forcing them? <coughs> I do. Kennedy was a very evil man. In fact, all the Kennedys are. Uh, 
<coughs> Richard Cardinal Cushing turned this off too. <coughs> Excuse me, thank you. We have a Christian legacy which is not dormant today and which is being revived but which has been discarded by many modern liberals, most modern liberals. <coughs> but it, the attack upon it has been featured politically by democracy. Because democracy, which believes in the sovereignty of man, cannot tolerate the biblical doctrine of the sovereignty of God. They're totally incompatible. You can't talk about the sovereignty of people in one breath and say you believe in the sovereignty of God in the other. They're totally incompatible, contradictory uh, positions. Which is what, really what Governor Cuomo was trying to hold last night, rather unsuccessfully. Now, God said that all people are able. No, he didn't. Where'd you say that? What did he say? I'm asking you. Now, you see, that we're all created in image. That does not mean we all have the same gift. I'm not denying we're all created in image. We don't have the same gift. <clears throat> Can you be a Padawiski and play the piano? Or we Padawiski or a... Um, what? But we can all make equal <clears throat> contributions. Can we? Can we? Could you operate for a tra heart transplant? Could you? If I studied for Oh, what you said? <clears throat> if you studied, well, sure. Maybe. <clears throat> but suppose you, you have stubby fingers. I, I didn't say you did. <laughs> uh, could you sing like a Pavarotti? I mean, you're talking mm. in contemporary terms now. Well, I, I, well all right then. But I'm saying, I thought God's law said that all men are No, what told me where it said that? Pardon me? It says all who believe in it, except Christ, he could think. Why, sure, I agree. They're all the same in God's eyes, that's right. Well, the lost men and lost and redeemed all the same in God's eyes? All the redeemed are. But is the unbeliever the same as the redeemed in God's eyes? We were doing in Greek, in Greek New Testament, <clears throat> in chapter 1 today, in our Greek class, um, what, <clears throat> God has looked upon you with a loving, piercing eye. Priori, right? Yes, right there. And he's looked upon his elect with a with an eye of piercing Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.